I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. And this week, I'm chatting with Australian industrial designer Brodie Neal, who's dialing in from his studio in London. So, Brody, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Great to be here. I uh, believe that you grew up or were born and grew up in Tasmania, which is one of my favourite places in the world. So I wanted to start out by our childhood and what that was like and perhaps how you think that setting may have influenced your outlook on life and maybe your approach to design. Uh, yeah, well, big question. Lots, to, lots to cover there. But, um, <laughs> but, but yes, like you know, definitely, uh, it's it's been my, my kind of my foundation. Um, you know, to everything I I do still still today. Um, but to go back uh, kind of further, um, yeah, you know, I was I was born, and 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 raised in Hobart, and I and I studied uh, furniture design at. Um, at university, the local art school there in Hobart, uh, which has a great program for for very sculptural, hands-on furniture design and making, um, and that really gave me a strong uh, foundation into uh, in, into basically making you know the most amazing things that you could think of, really, um, and um, and really got me quite kind of rooted. Uh, in in with the materiality of things, and um, yeah, but my my family was very creative. I very inspired that, and I I used to build furniture in my in my family shed uh, after school and weekends uh, as as a teenager, like you know from thirteen onwards, um, always redesigning things and remaking things. Never really wanting to make the same thing twice because that was very much the kind of, I don't know, the artist in me to really try and push the boundaries each and each and every time. And, and it hasn't really wavered since. Um, still that same kind of, I don't know, pioneering spirit to really uh, kind of go uh, where my work has not gone before. Mm. That's very cool. I've never heard anyone say that before. Um, you hear interior designers talk about, you know, messing with their bedroom when they're young, but I, I've not heard <laughs> anyone say they were actually building furniture. So kudos to you. Um, you said you were about 13 when you were doing that. Is that right? Yeah. And, and my mum still got them, the pieces in Hobart. Um, so whenever I get back there and visit, it's always, uh, it's nice to remin reminisce, but, uh, it's, uh, Let's just say it was very much my early work uh, and, uh, you know, the, the test bed for everything to come. Mm. And do you remember kind of a pivotal moment when you, or a, an aha moment perhaps, when you decided that that was really the path that you wanted to follow in terms of study and a career? Oh, yeah, very clearly. Um, I guess... I guess as a as a teenager, you know, kind of fresh out of school, and what was we're all faced with that question as of what we do next uh, in our in our kind of career paths and and the choice of 
kind of uh, you know university studies etc in what direction that's going to take you and and I wasn't I wasn't a hundred percent sure I guess I did, maybe there was a little tiny bit of doubt in my mind which was uh, whether or not this almost hobby from my kind of uh, family shed uh, could actually be be a career and I learned very early on within I think it was about about four to six weeks of kind of commencing the the furniture design program in, in, in Hobart that that this was an international uh, kind of industry this is something that could could uh, you know to take you around the world and kind of cross cultures and uh, and continuously inspire um, kind of you know collaborations and uh, and new work mm. and I I'm curious to know at that age, were you somewhat aware or, or conscious of your geographic distance uh, from, you know, I guess the rest of the world, <laughs> to put it politely? Melbourne's a long way away as well, but Hobart is pretty far. Were you aware of that at that age? A little bit. Maybe maybe, maybe at what I was 18 years old, there was a little bit of naivety there to, to think otherwise. Um, but um, I think it just... It just opened my eyes to to the world of of uh, anything from let's say industrial design in the European sense to studio furniture making across the United States, the designer maker industry across Australia, um, and and where I kind of sat um, was kind of in the middle of all of that. Um, so yeah, there was there was a lot of opportunity, but of course. I was I was very focused in my in the here and now at the time, you know, to to really kind of uh, learn as much as I could and just be a sponge. And oh, you know, they were very uh, very fond years, I suppose, of um, uh, of being just so kind of immersed in it all. That's great, um, and I think it's fair to say, correct me if I'm wrong, that you have become somewhat known for working with materials that are either salvaged or uh, perhaps considered to be waste materials or recycled, repurposed. Um, and I wonder whether you could tell us perhaps when that first became a passion of yours, when you first wanted to work with materials like that. Well, materiality has always been a very uh, important kind of starting point. Um, I think that uh, you know I was taught early on that you've got a great responsibility with the materials in your hand um, you know, to 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 transform them into something that's quite lasting. Um, if a piece of wood, for example, you know, to, to consider the, the hundreds, maybe thousands of years that it's taken to, to grow and all the processes that it's passed through to get to, get to that point. Um, you know, it's quite important not to be wasteful in how you deal with that material. And in the case of, you know, if it's metal, then you think of the, the materials being mined or in, even in plastics, you know, being the materials being, you know, refined from fossil fuels, etc., and things like this. So. It's really important at that starting point that there is a there's a responsibility, almost a stewardship to the material, and and to keep it in in some form of circularity. But the I guess the the turning point was um, uh, a piece that dates back to two thousand and six, um, 
I guess it was always all resourcefulness, but this one stands out. Um, and it's a piece simply called the Pebble uh, because it was just basically a form study that um, that we wanted to that I wanted to create. Uh, back at this time, it was merging um, the, the handmade with the digital, using you know very at that point very state of the art CNC kind of carving, yet doing a lot of hand preparation um, to kind of uh, you know prior to that. Uh, and it's a piece that's it's like a sculptural kind of Ottoman round bench kind of shape, uh, almost like a kind of river stone or a skimming stone in its uh, asymmetric form. Uh, yet it's made out of square stock that is American cherry wood, which was actually um, rejected factory seconds from the Jaguar factory um, in Nottingham here in the UK. This was one of the first pieces I did since moving to the United Kingdom and um, and here was a material that was that was just simply discarded because of its natural defects um, which of course you know I saw as details where it was the presence of sapwood and um, uh, you know knots and kind of natural variation within the grain which was not deemed uh, good enough for the the gear sticks and the levers of a Jaguar car. That's incredible. Um, so I want to fast forward now, I think, by a couple of years to the Remix Lounge, yep. which I believe has was made from leftovers or salvaged timber from building sites. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Can you tell us how you sort of came to learn about that sort of um, the waste from that industry? Well, there's a similar moment, really, and I think that um, the Pebble was a form study in, in more than just in more than just form, it was more in, in process and materiality as well, because it then did inspire the remix. It kind of got me thinking, well, well, if we could do this with 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 this constant, you know, kind of singular material, what what could we do with with all of the materials that that, that we can find from different kind of waste streams and sources, and and then it kind of got me thinking in a bit of an R and D kind of way of of taking materials from my studio. Uh, and mixing and matching, and then the, yeah, the the the, the kind of the idea as far as the, let's say the kind of the horse had bolted really, and it just said, well, how far can we really take this? So we were getting um, materials like um, um, well, various types of plywood from from leftover from from jobs, uh, and also even constructions like skips. Uh, if it was in good enough condition, we went to sign makers and got offcuts of acrylics and um, and and also materials like corian and masonite and all these all these materials that can actually be uh, let's say CNC machine um, by themselves. Um, no one had ever kind of mixed and matched them and kind of got them cut out in one. And it's actually the robotic process is quite important here because if you were to do this by hand, because of the different densities of the materials, it wouldn't come out as smooth as as what the uh, the consistency of the of of the CNC process gives. So um, it was quite a um, it was quite a turning point. I really didn't know uh, technically, uh, you know, how this thing was going to work out, uh, and also how it was really going to be received. Um, but you know, fortunately, then you know both were were quite a success, and um, uh, and you know these editions find themselves in museum collections around the world, and uh, and very happy to say that they're 
they're still pristine in every way. Well, speaking of museum collections, I want to fast forward now to the London Biennale in 2016, uh, the Australian Pavilion, which was curated by the NGV, and I think perhaps the first time that I became aware of your work, and I'm referring to the gyro table, um, and that's now since been acquired and is part of the permanent collection at the NGV, I believe. Um, could you tell us a bit about the material of that table? I believe you call it Ocean Tarato. How was it first developed? How did, how was that sort of how did that process come about? Um, in two thousand and fifteen, I was invited um, by the NGV uh, as part of their kind of uh, rig design prize, and um, uh, it was a design kind of consortium slash camp in Tasmania. Um, and uh, you know, I was I was back home at the time, so it was it was great to join them and go back to, to um, you know, the property of John Wardall and on on Bruny Island, for um, uh, for this this design camp, which had probably about thirty people from around the world, um, and um, and I was a kind of um, I was I was off walking by myself down on the beach of of, of Bruny Island and and I, I picked up some some pieces of plastic off the beach and um, what really kind of struck me was how kind of remote we were and how how you know kind of sparsely populated Tasmania is and certainly this part and uh, the fact that. Mm, you know, like let's say, big civilization feels like a long way away from this part of Tasmania. Yet here, the kind of unfortunately the knock-on effect is is present on this beautiful beach, and um, and that just struck me to, that that I really kind of you know something had to be done, and and how could I take these pieces of 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 plastic, and if I remember, they were everything from uh, I think there was a toothbrush. Uh, there was, um, you know, right down to kind of smaller kind of microplastic pieces and, and, and packaging and strapping and all these types of things. Uh, but it really struck me how these could become the building blocks of something new and, and, and here is a material that's, that is designed for longevity, for life, uh, yet it gets used for such a short period of time and, and, and finds itself, finds its way into the environment. So how could we put that material back into circularity. Uh, that was that was the kind of design challenge that I had set myself. And then about three months later, the opportunity came to present an idea for the, the Australian Pavilion um, uh, for the London Design Biennale at Somerset House. And, and I just thought that this was the perfect opportunity for, for Australia to take a leading role in the stewardship of the oceans to to really literally bring the issue of ocean plastic to the round table of this international design forum uh, in the form of the gyro table. Um, so that kind of really accelerated a lot of research and, and, uh, and development has really propelled my uh, career and, and kind of, I don't know, let's say design status beyond just the designer and really into that kind of, um, I don't know, eco spokesperson kind of um, uh, role, um, and um, and the material that we developed was to to use the microplastics, which which um, are obviously 
very small um, uh, kind of pieces of plastic that have been broken down in the ocean uh, over long periods of time and then reconstitute that into into what uh, effectively came out to be a terrazzo-like material. It's, it's so interesting because I think one of the issues from my limited understanding with uh, recycling plastic is the various types of plastics and actually kind of melting them down and sorting. But you seem to kind of have leapfrogged over that issue and kind of solved it with a very simple, beautiful solution, which is this terrazzo-like material, um, <laughs> which is so interesting. And I, I think, you know, we also have probably an idea in our head of what something might look like that is made from recycled materials or salvaged materials. Um, and I don't think your work fits into that category. It's incredibly refined and beautifully finished. And I think you kind of alluded to this uh, a little earlier about um, a sense of craftsmanship. And I wanted to perhaps ask you about how important you think that combination of, of craft as well as technology and innovation is in your work, would you say that they they will have equal weighting? Yes, and um, I guess the, the the partnership of the two coming together is 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 varied depending on which piece we kind of we, we talk about. But um, in the in the case of the of the gyro table and all and all the pieces I've done with the with the ocean threats of material, it is you know there is no greater transformation. Uh, of that material, literally from um, you know, plastic, which is which is unfortunately in the environment, through to elevating it to let's say you know museum-worthy pieces. So that's quite a transformation. But um, I think that uh, to, to touch on your point about how uh, how much we kind of move that material, kind of transform that material, it's important that there needs to be some familiarity. So I think that people are drawn in by the, the scale uh, of the gyro table, almost this kind of Milky Way, kind of galactic, kind of, you know, kind of star configuration, let's say. Uh, but then on approach, you know, you start to learn the more kind of dark, well, you know, the darker kind of underbelly of what the actual material is, you know, more on a kind of micro level. So it's important to kind of have that where people can understand the transformation, but then what we've done to it is enough to really give it, or give it new life, I suppose. Um, and that is achieved by, um, yeah, that partnership of, of uh, material craftsmanship and, and the digital side of things, or digital craftsmanship, really, because um, there are very kind of uh, innovative ways that we can, you know, work with the machines and work with the, the digital tools um, to get ever more interesting outcomes. Um, and it's quite important within my kind of day-to-day -day practice to really um, uh, understand both. And I think that you can quite easily get carried away with the digital side of things, but then the work might not hold up if it's not executed to the, to the levels that we expect. Well, I really look forward to seeing it again at the NGV now that Melbourne is slowly reopening. And I probably should also say for listeners outside of Melbourne, the NGV is the National Gallery of Victoria. Uh, so I actually want to talk next about your project for the upcoming London Craft Week, which I believe has 
seen you return to Tasmania um, for other reasons. Could you tell us a little bit about what you're creating for that event, the, the piece that you've designed? Yes, yes. Well, my, ret my return to Tasmania is more metaphorically than, than physically, <laughs> <Virtual>. obviously, yeah, <laughs> because, of, uh, because of the current situation. But, um, yeah, it, it, it dates back to... Um, what was it, kind of like March or April of this year. And um, I was approached by the London Craft Week uh, organisers who really wanted to kind of internationalise their program. And in doing so, they wanted to bring Design Tasmania into the fold because of the, you know, their reputation in, um, in design and craftsmanship. And uh, it was just the perfect moment. Uh, I'd been having conversations with Design Tasmania about doing um, an exhibition of my work in the, in the, in the coming years. Um, so it probably fast-tracked that a little bit. Um, and, and I'd always been uh, a fan of, um, of, of Craft Week because, um, because it's, it's, it's got all the things that I love. It's got the, it's got the craftsmanship, it's got the material. Um, it, it's got the, in, the innovation and sometimes the digital innovation and it's really got that kind of synergy of all of those things where um, so I, it's something I'd always wanted to kind of do so this was the perfect moment um, plus we'd also had quite a few exhibitions and, uh, and events cancelled over the last few years so this was something that we could really kind of dig my teeth into uh, and, and focus on and what also enjoy, was enjoyable was it was it was the coming together of, of of my two worlds really you know like having a foot in Tasmania and a foot here in London to really um, kind of merge those two um, kind of worlds and have this, this this great opportunity. So I my first thought was to contact um, Hydrowood um, and the director of the Hydrowood in Tasmania. Um, Andrew Morgan and I have been in conversation for a few years, basically waiting for something like this to come along. Um, and Hydrowood is the um, is the indigenous Tasmanian timbers that have been harvested from the bottom of the the flooded lakes uh, of, of Western uh, Tasmania. Um, uh, these kind of really, uh, sorry um, rivers and valleys that were that were flooded in the 70s and the 80s in order to create hydroelectricity dams um, had therefore obviously flooded uh, trees that, that, that could be underwater some 25 to 30 meters deep um, uh, and the hydrowood has, uh, has devised the, the technology to to be able to kind of harvest these trees underwater Wow that's yeah that's quite incredible I wouldn't have even known that that was a thing. And so can you tell us a bit about the piece that you've created using the hydro wood? Yeah, the, the, the idea to um, reform uh, veneers had been kind of um, kicking about in the studio for a few years. Um, and the idea was basically to be able to, to take um, Offcuts from 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 panel production, as in when they're trimming the natural tree down to, to down to kind of square panels, and um, then what we were able to do is to formulate that with the hydrowood concept by actually using um, 
uh, you know, kind of offcuts and, and recall pieces. So, so basically, in order to to gather the full spectrum of the Tasmanian timbers for the recoil table, um, uh, Andrew and his hydrowood team had to basically um, recall uh, a lot of uh, um, offcuts and smaller pieces from from other designers uh, and designers and makers. Um, many of them my, my peers growing up, so I certainly uh, I owe a few beers when I'm next back in Tasmania, in Victoria. <laughs> um, but um, but these materials were all recalled and 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 then sent uh, sent to a veneer mill here in in London uh, that I've been working closely with. That was able to kind of um, uh, you know, cut them into the strips. That then were then uh, recoiled uh, quite. Um, Say painstakingly, it was a long, drawn-out process. But the but the process of actually coiling is was quite um, relaxing, I suppose, quite therapeutic in it in its in its in how it emerges. Because um, I guess it's a very different process to to let's say woodwork, which would be you know kind of taking a piece of wood and refining it down to something. And here is we're more additive, um, where the coils would um, would emerge almost like the the, the growth rings of a uh, of an old growth forest um, Tasmanian tree and it would kind of grow into this elliptical array uh, spiral array um, of all the hydro wood timbers well it sounds quite beautiful um, so I, I wish you all the best with that um, and I, I have one more question before I let you go, and it's about, you know, whether you feel optimistic about the future of the planet, given how much you've seen of wasted materials and pollution washing up on quite remote beaches. Are you, are you optimistic about, you know, what, what we can, um, I guess, achieve, or are you pessimistic about the situation that we're in? Uh, honestly, I, I probably swing between the both, uh, the two. Um, uh, I guess you know I would, I'd like to think of myself as always optimistic, um, uh, but um, doing the um, doing the kind of deep research into the ocean plastic works. You know, when I've I've been to the to some of the worst affected areas of um, of Hawaii and uh, and and these islands that. Uh, Face the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and and I've seen the amount of um, plastic that uh, that is that is that is collected there, and um, and and the just the huge difficulty that um, that we face uh, in in trying to let's say repurpose it or even even control or contain it, um, because unfortunately the plastic tap. That's feeding the plastic into the ocean is 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 far greater than than any method to to, to get it out. So, um, but I think that you know if we can continue as 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 creative people to to think of uh, innovative ways to use it, um, then obviously that drives a purpose um, to to make those changes. And um, and I know my work is more. Uh, about uh, you know, elevating these pieces as 
as more as examples than, than, than solutions. But if it shines a light that uh, inspires others, then, then that's a good thing. Absolutely. Well, I, I don't know about you, but I'm hoping that someone is going to find a solution or perhaps a second life for all of this discarded face masks that um, I imagine yep. are going to surface after COVID. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that's really kind of you know struck me. Obviously, with the pandemic uh, around the world, then um, it's really put um, kind of you know in environmental kind of efforts, uh, you know, back a few years um, um, because, you know, the world's dependency on, on uh, you know, sterilised and synthetics and things like that, you know, has, has grown so much. Uh, you think of, uh, um, you think of kind of all the gloves and the, and the, you know, and all the plastics in the medicines and so on, and and also as you mentioned, the face masks. Um, they unfortunately find their ways into the waterways and into the rivers and the seas and the oceans. Yeah, it's quite horrifying. Um, well, do you have any parting messages for us? Are there any uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> simple, quick, easy things that we could be doing to be, you know, avoiding them ending up in the waterways? Have you found any solutions for that, or? Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm hoping yeah. to be optimistic as well. It's sometimes hard though. <laughs> it's, it comes down to material management. And I think that um, if, if, we, if we changed our attitude toward plastic uh, and, and, and knew that it had some, some value, you know, like almost to mimic um, what we think about, you know, kind of let's say glass and aluminium and these types of things with which there is more of a, uh, you know, a, a, a circular system there, but I guess you know, plastic is just so abundant and and of such little value that it's it's it creates such a problem in so many kind of you know stages from domestic recycling to what your kind of local council faces to industry uh, and obviously the environment as a whole. So, um, unfortunately, there there is no. There is no quick fix, and I just think that it just comes down to a lot of a lot of small actions. Mm. Definitely food for thought, and yeah, I agree. It, it's it's really probably down to all of us just doing or starting off with just a little bit, um, and not feeling overwhelmed and doing nothing at all. No, no, no. It's got to start somewhere. It does. Well, thank you so much, Brody. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you and thank you for giving us your time on a Monday morning with such heavy questions. We really appreciate it. Okay. No, thank you very much. It's been great to talk to you.